Welcome to Board Gamers Anonymous, episode 85. This week's feature, Best Games for Female Representation. We'll also talk about the world of smog on Her Majesty's Service, Dingominoes, and Mission Red Planet 2nd Edition. You're listening to a proud member of the Dice Tower Network, dedicated to bringing podcasters together for the greater good of gaming. It's sort of like Voltron, but with better lip syncing. Find out more at Dicetowernetwork.com. Welcome to Board Gamers Anonymous, the podcast about board gamers and the insane fun we have at the table. This is Chris. This is Daniel. And this is Drew. Welcome to the table, everybody. We're so glad to have you join us here this week. As you hear from our intro, Anthony is not with us yet. He is pursuing his board game ambitions to complete the longest route from New York to Pittsburgh. So somewhere in the state of Pennsylvania, Anthony's out there, and when he lands in Pittsburgh, he'll be joining us back on the podcast. He's out there laying track quickly as he can. He'll be back next week. This week, we also wanted to talk about our final step in the Cool Stuff, Inc., Dice Tower Network Board Gamers Anonymous contest. So for the last four weeks, you've been entering the contest. Thank you all for doing so. We got some boosts on Twitter, some boosts on Facebook, and we have increased our guild on BoardGamersAnonymous.com. And everyone's been visiting the website. So I'm so glad that we can continue and grow the board gaming industry and that everyone's getting a chance to meet each other and you know we're not as anonymous as we once were all right so finally we get to announce the winner our winner is drum roll please jason perez congratulations jason Whoa. you'll be receiving a 50 dollars gift certificate from cool stuff inc and you'll be entered into the 500 dollars cool stuff in contest we hope that you win the whole 500 dollars and be sure to let us know what you pick up from that gift certificate all right so with that done let's head on to the news shout it from the tabletops <laughs> sir you're gonna need to get down from there hey power to the meeple dudes you know meeple is now an officially recognized word in the oxford dictionary don't get too excited it's just a mostly a slang thing They've also recognized honage as a word. And that's been around almost as long as meeple, maybe longer. Is that Latin or is that Germanic, ponage? I never remember where that came from. Yeah, I think it's, uh, it's, it's Latin for that thing I do to you guys all the time. <laughs> oh, burn. Oh, it's just the guy who probably wins the least games in the group. Oh! <laughs> Cardboard burn! <laughs> So there's like unponage or deponaged or not ponage. Other words, uh, for example, bruh, awesome sauce, manic pixie dream girl. I don't know where Oxford keeps coming up with these, but it's hard to imagine a conservative old-fashioned dictionary like Oxford just accepting manspreading into the language. <laughs> Well, you know, they're they're not the ones who make those decisions, right? They're lexicographers. Their job is to record what is being used. Uh, they're not the ones who determine what is used. They just... It's the marketing people who determine it and tell the <laughs> lexicographers, hey. Yeah. It was probably it... due to some manic pixie dream girl that made them add that, so... <laughs> you know, she's charming. You can't resist her. It's really? true. I, I, how could you possibly, <laughs> especially when you drop so much ponage on you, brah? Ooh, man. <laughs> 
Hey, something's coming up real soon, an event. It's coming up in November, but people need to know about it now. International Games Day at your local library. It, it comes in November 21st. It, it's a big event in a lot of towns and around the world, too. But the deadline, libraries to sign up in order to get publisher games and uh, promo packs for free is September 10th. So find out if your local library is doing it, International Games Day. Convince them to to participate. It's easy to find on the Internet. The website for it is just igd.org. A-L-A dot O-R-G. Real easy to find. Your library should look it up and participate, and they'll get some free games, and you guys can have a lot of fun. They're also going to have this worldwide Minecraft tournament. Uh, they call it Minecraft Hunger Games, where each library is going to select <laughs> oh, a winner, and then every library will put up their winner against all these other library winners around the world and to, to find one international winner at Minecraft. How do you win at minecraft i don't know it's not like you're just beating each other over the head with your little minecraft <laughs> i think they just give them tasks objects to try and complete okay so it's kind of it's like a like a it's like a lego tournament or something i don't even know if they have those but you could you could i guess make up some rules it's make minecraft, the coolest circle yeah. you create whatever you want but it's going to be you know head to head it's going to be an interesting competition. Minecraft, it's a whole other world, man. Minecraft is a big world. thing. Minecraft's yeah. amazing. It's Plus huge. the fact that libraries are starting to acknowledge that in order to bring in new patrons, they really do have to kind of expand into different mediums. But by doing so, they can bring in people to books. And that's one of the great things about libraries is that they change and they evolve over the generations. And even if your library is not participating in this type of activity – I highly recommend you just find a librarian and talk to them about it. If you can make it just even a decent type of request to them, a lot of libraries are really open to different things. I remember a couple of years ago, you started to see uh, manga in a, in a library. And I was like, yeah. really? They're, they carry manga now? And I was like, it just blew my mind because it was such an outside type of thing that normal library readers don't read. And there's just huge collections now. So board games and video games are the next step. It is. There are more and more you hear about them, whether they have groups that meet in the library to play them or whether they allow their games to be checked out. You're seeing more and more. It's really cool. Moving on. Games Workshop is bowing to the obvious and renaming all their stores Warhammer because that's all we really know about Games Workshop anyway. It's all about the branding. They want people to come in for Warhammer. So you're just going to see these Warhammer stores everywhere because they are doubling down on retail at the same time, opening up more stores including in, in high-traffic tourist areas. So all the places where you go see these Godiva chocolate stores right next door, there's going to be a Warhammer. <laughs> it's going to be there. It's going to invade Godiva and steal all the chocolates. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, it's branding. It just makes sense. You go with the name people recognize. The old name is way out of date because what does Games Workshop mean anymore anyway? Hmm. You know, it was created for TSR. It was created back in the old Dungeons & Dragons era. Mm-hmm. to to develop that but they've gone so far beyond that it just makes sense i got four words for you guys doctor who miniatures game okay Done. all i'll say is i'm in <laughs> i'm out oh it's doctor who hey i got some doctor who news for you who rpg cubicle seven is releasing a new edition uh of their rpg with the current doctor peter capaldi and his recent adventures 
So is it a coincidence that all of this Doctor Who news is coming out right near the premiere of the latest season? Could it be a coincidence? I would hope so, not. I would hope that the <laughs> companies involved in this are smart enough to coordinate. That's it. They do. Sometime in September. Or is it October? The board games and card games that have come out for Doctor Who, at least previously, have been terribly disappointing. So I'm really looking forward to seeing a miniature game or something like that. I mean, if they have all the Doctors and all the companions and all of the different characters and creatures, I think that's going to it's gonna make a big impact on board gaming. Yeah, I mean... I love Doctor Who, but I am suspicious of any attempt to transfer it to video or board gaming. Mm. I I just don't think it's going to make that transition terribly well sure. and be able to keep the the things that make it unique and special. Sure. Well, the RPG seems to have been successful enough um, that enough people have caught on to it. I, j- I just wonder, what do you do if everybody wants to play the Doctor? Everybody wants to be the Doctor. How do you really have a a balanced RPG of Doctor Who. Unless you have all the Doctors involved and everybody can choose what Doctor they want to be. Yeah, <laughs> it, it just doesn't seem like it's going to play out terribly well, in, in my view. It's kind of like the the Buffy the Vampire role-playing game. There's a lot of games, RPGs out there that are very popular based on their IPs, and they sound like a really good idea until you realize that the way that world works is there is a definite protagonist. And a good role-playing game cannot have a protagonist. It's a co-op game, exactly. It's, everybody's equal. Everyone's in it together. Mm-hmm. Uh, true, good point. I got some Kickstarter news. I don't usually talk about Kickstarters, but there's a documentary film that's uh, trying to raise money for a, a film about the inventor of Operation, John Spinello. Now, if you remember, there was a Kickstarter some months back to raise money for a much-needed operation for him since he sold off the the rights of the game and doesn't have a steady income. He gets no royalties. Um, The organizers of that Kickstarter are putting together a film to publicize that whole Spinello's contribution and and all of that. It's called The Buzz Heard Round the World. Hmm. So I I don't encourage people to support Kickstarter projects. That's not what I'm trying to do. Just letting you know it's a thing. That's my thing. I encourage people to support Kickstarter projects. (laughs) (laughs) That's your thing. That's my thing. Hasbro is inviting game inventors to submit ideas for new party games. Hasbro will pick the best five that they like, put them on Indiegogo, not, not Kickstarter, and then they'll give financial support to the one of those five they like the best. It won't necessarily be the most successful. Hmm. And I think that's why they chose Indiegogo, because even if you don't meet a particular goal, you still keep the money and you still move forward. Hasbro could pick one that doesn't get a lot of financial support if they like it. But the interesting thing is Hasbro's not being the monolith that wants to own all the games. Each of the inventors will be free to strike their own deals. Hasbro just wants to have the right of first refusal to match the offer. (laughs) I mean, that's that's better than just saying, it's mine. Yeah, but if they're getting bids from other board game publishers, how much could a other board game publisher give to them? Because Hasbro's huge. Yeah. Everybody else is significantly smaller than Hasbro. But the thing is, Hasbro isn't... If these games are good but not world beaters, Hasbro isn't going to make a deal with them. They want really successful games. I like the fact that they recognize that crowdfunding is a thing and that people are willing to put their money out there and that they're supporting new designers, so there's no downside. Yeah. And I understand that since they're putting their money out, they do want something in return. I don't begrudge them that either. And I guess if anybody is the proper distributor of a party game it would be hasbro 
But at the same time, I don't know. We'll see, I guess, right? Yeah. Okay. Sure, it's the deadline September 30th, so we'll, to, to get your ideas in, I have no idea when the Indiegogo will launch, but they're just going to collect ideas, and then they'll choose their five later on. Okay, sounds good. One final bit of news. Our board game-loving friends at The Guardian in London have published another article about the hobby. It's called 20 Awesome Board Games You May Never Heard Of. Well, we've heard of all of them. <laughs> but this this article, it's not necessarily for us, but it tells us how helpful The Guardian has been in driving traffic toward board gaming. Um, I, I'm not familiar with, I think, Antiquity and City of Remnants were on the list, and I'm not really familiar with those. You guys? Yes. Familiar with them? Antiquity, yeah, I played both of those, and uh, they're good games. They're a little fiddly, but they're both really good games. And do you think they're good for, like, the up-and-coming uh, beginner gamers? They're a little heavier, especially Antiquity is is definitely a heavier kind of Euro game. So it's always hard when they talk about gateway gamers, entry-level gamers, casual gamers. What exactly does that mean? I mean, uh, yeah. anyone who picks up these types of games is a hardcore gamer. Antiquity is not for the faint of heart. Interesting. Well, they, they listed 20, and that was toward the bottom of the list. So I'm wondering if they ranked them based on accessibility. Um but you know what? The, the fact is The Guardian keeps publicizing the hobby, making more and more people aware of it. it. It's good for all of us. Like you said before, it's a win-win situation. So should we all pitch in and send The Guardian a dozen roses? These guys are good for us. <laughs> well, at, at least a dozen mini games. you know, something that they would appreciate. All right, cool. That's all the news we got from the tabletop, guys. And now, our acquisition disorders. Acquisition disorders? That's crazy! Only needs the base game, nothing else but the base game. The base game and the expansion. See? Nothing else. Just the base game and the expansion and the promos. The base game and the expansion and the promos and, of course, the upgraded components. Why wouldn't you have the upgraded components? So the base All right, game, so for our acquisition disorders this week, we're going to talk about components. some See, brand new things that we want to get to the table or help us get brand new games to the table. All right, Daniel, why don't you start us off this week? Well, I've got two things for my acquisition disorder this week. The first one is... As we've been talking here today, like it, literally in the last few minutes, I've just ordered new gaming shelves because my old ones have now totally overflowed and are spilling out into the floor and making a good chunk of my apartment impossible to move around. <laughs> so I just picked up some of the Better Homes and Garden shelves from Walmart. They're a little bit cheaper than the IKEA shelves, and you can get six, the 16 cubes set put together for a pretty good price. So excited about my new shelves. But really, you know, it's all about the games. And, the, and now, now you can buy more games. Right. I've got more spaces that I now need to fill because this <laughs> is go. how the process moves forward. Uh, and the game I'm really most interested in right now is Forbidden Stars from Fantasy Flight Games. Uh, I used to play Warhammer 40K pretty frequently when I was younger and had more time. Uh, and I'm honestly actually a pretty big fan of tabletop miniature combat games. I'd play Mage Knight and all of those games back in the day. But they take a lot of time, and they're very intimidating and difficult to learn, and it's hard to get people to play with you unless that's all you want to play. Forbidden Stars is kind of like Warhammer 40k for a slightly less dedicated crowd, and that sounds exciting. Apparently it's a re-implementation of StarCraft, the board game, but considerably improved. At least that's the, the general consensus. Uh, but I look forward to the possibility of playing Warhammer 40K without having to have a small library of reference books and 
playing only with the same people every week for the rest of your life. You know, it's fun doing that too, but I don't know. I like being able to bring new people in to play with me that might not already know. And for Warhammer 40k, when I went to learn it anyway, the response of the guys playing it was, go buy the rule books, go home and read them, come back next week and we'll teach you. Mm. And that's... You know, that's a pretty big barrier to entry. So hopefully Forbidden Stars will lower that lower that barrier to entry enough that I could possibly bring in at least another experienced board gamer without having to make them go home and read the rule book. So the, that's my acquisition disorder for this week, Forbidden Stars. Drew, how about you? Well, it's it's not a game I want to acquire as much as a hundred games. <laughs> and it's not a table that I want to play them at. It's more of like a, a, a screen. Um, I'm really curious about Tabletopia. It's on Kickstarter now. And for someone who doesn't promote Kickstarter, I've been talking a lot about <laughs> crowdfunding. Not because it's on Kickstarter, but because it really is a what I think could be a big leap forward for combining analog games with digital it's a surface. It's a platform. They call themselves a sandbox. Designers can create games within Tabletopia to try them out. Designers can create prototypes and allow people to play them together to try them out. Publishers can, can put their games out to isolated people who don't have game groups to play. It's a subscription basis, but right away they already have like 100 games already plugged in so you get access to to quite a few games the drawbacks to this they are talking about the the pricing for subscriptions they have different levels different access the pricing could be a lot for for some people who want to participate month after month after month and there's no rules enforcement which which means it's not automated you have to really pay attention one thing it does do, it automates the whole fiddly process. It sets up the game for you. So if you hate fiddly games but really love playing them, it simplifies that too. The graphics look awesome, really very sharp and clear and bright, like uh, this is something that could draw you in, hold your attention. I don't know if it's asynchronous. I, I don't know if it's set up for that, but you got it. So, so you have to have a group of people to play but they also facilitate that. They help you find people around the world to play games with you. So all of that is worked into Tabletopia. There's even some word that they're going to get rules enforcement uh, at some point in the future, which would really make, make playing games on Tabletopia simpler. I don't know. It could be the future of gaming. I'm always looking for something that combines the two. Uh, the first, they're coming to Steam next year if they get the funding, and I think they will, obviously. Um, so they're going to set up on Steam. We can try it out through Steam. Then they'll go to iOS. They'll go to Android. They'll they'll spread this out farther and farther. It could be a game changer. Who knows? But I'm definitely going to follow them. I want to find out. Chris, how about you? All right, so what I'm really looking forward to is Roll for the Galaxy Ambition. Now, there isn't a lot of detail out about this game from Rio Grande Games, but if you played Roll for the Galaxy, this outstanding re-implementation of Race for the Galaxy, then you're really, really, really looking forward for more because there's so many different ways to play it, but the game is always lacking a little something, and that little something is added here in this expansion. So first off, you're going to get a leader die, and that's pretty nice because anytime you could add more dice to a dice-chucking game, that's outstanding. And... This die is going to be special because it's really going to have 
kind of like a little bit of everything to it, including a wild, and it goes back into your cup on certain rolls, which is nice because the starting placement of the game is a little slow. You're building up, you're, you're kind of getting new dice, but having this black leader die at the very beginning kind of gets the game going a little faster, and that's really what this game was missing. But on top of which, there's also going to be a second die, an entrepreneurial orange die that you can add to the game. And in addition to that, there's going to be objectives. But this is what I'm really looking forward to. There's going to be 14 new starting factions and 7 new starting worlds. So anytime a game adds a little more strategy up front, kind of like 7 Wonders Leaders, where you can kind of build an overall strategy by having some more initial direction in the game all the better and especially when it comes down to a dice game you like to feel like the randomness is somewhat mitigated by those initial starting pieces so this is something i'm looking forward to there as i said before there's little information that's been released about it yet but what we do have about this new release is exciting i'm looking forward to it and i can't wait to get this to the table all right All right, so that's our Acquisition Disorders for this week. And now, At the Table with BGA. So for our At the Table this week, we're going to talk about three games that we recently got a chance to play. And we're going to let you know if the game is worth a buy, a play, a dodge, or the dreaded burn. So let's get started. Daniel, why don't you start us off? Sure, Chris. Well, my at the table this week was Mission Red Planet, the second edition. Uh, so, so Mission Red Planet is a an area control game where you try to take over regions of Mars, as you might guess from the title. And you gain points for having control at the end of three different scoring phases. And then there are various effects that can affect your final scoring for having specific regions, particularly in the form of discovery cards, which can wildly change the end game scoring and are very important to keep track of. The way that Mission Red Planet plays is that you have these little spaceships that have a certain number of people they can take, varies depending on the spaceship, and they go to different locations on the planet depending on the spaceship. And you have cards that will let you place astronauts onto them, launch them at the, at to, to Mars, and then deploy them from there. The cards that you have are, it plays kind of like Concordia with a sort of hand management aspect where you play through a static hand. You have just a certain number of tricks you can use, but you can use them several times. uh, And then you have to bring them back to your hand at some point to repeat your tricks. Uh, There are cards like the Scientist, which lets you either look at hidden face-down discovery cards on the table, which have a great deal of significance for in-game scoring, or pull new ones out. Uh, You've got cards that let you move people onto ships, move them from the ship to the planet. You you can even get ships to launch before they're full. You can move people around on the planets. You can kill enemy astronauts. Or you can even blow up entire spaceships in an act of dangerous sabotage. It's a pretty simple game, and you're going to get the hang of it really fast, I think. Maybe the second round i think we had all gotten it down right you get it you get it pretty quick but it's a lot of fun to play uh, and it can be very dynamic in that there are special uh, in-game scoring conditions that will come up for every game uh, and then you can pull these discovery cards which make 
the specific regions of Mars have different properties that will be known only to the person that puts it down unless someone else plays a scientist to look at that. Uh, we found in our three-player game, that was Chris, myself, and Anthony, uh, that those discovery cards made a massive difference, but that might be just because of the way we piled them up. Uh, so it's going to be a good idea to keep an eye on other people's discoveries. I think in a larger group, that would have to happen, right? People would start seeing what one another had placed, and uh, rather than what we had done, which is pretty much all of us were going blind with respect to what discovery cards other people had placed. It's a solid area control game with some really fun mechanics, and I really love that Concordia-style hand management. So Mission to Red Planet, for me, comes on the high end of play bordering on buy. It's a fantasy flight game, and it is, according to their website, on the boat. Not yet available, but it should be available soon. <laughs> sure. And uh, it MSRPs for about $50, okay. which is, I think, pretty much fair for this game. It, it's got a lot of little plastic uh, astronauts in it. The art is very charismatic. It's sort of not quite steampunky, but almost steampunky. It's got that sort of Victorian-era imagination of what space travel would have looked like, uh, which I actually found really interesting and I really appreciated. And the play is engaging, interactive, and dynamic. So highly recommend you take a look at this one when it comes out, and you're probably going to want to pick up a copy if you don't get somebody else in your board game group to, to do it for you, uh, because it's definitely worth having in the uh, the group's collection. Chris, how about you? What did you think about Mission Red Planet? I got a chance to play Mission Red Planet in its original version before it went out of print. So this game was quite hard to find, and it was one of the most sought-after reprints that I can imagine in quite some time. As Daniel said, that Concordia or that Citadel's type of mechanic where you have all of these different roles and you'll get a chance to play a role that round that's hidden until it kind of flips up is outstanding. So what to choose, when to play it, then when to kind of play a card to pull all those back into your hand is really interesting because, yes, there's some strategy here because you're trying to get as many of your astronauts on Mars as possible, but yet at the same time, you have to play things in the right order because if you go too heavy in the beginning but don't spread them out at certain times, you're not really benefiting yourself. Now, the second edition, as Daniel said, it adds these little plastic astronauts, which really adds to the game. It's so much better than the little cubes. And in addition to that, it adds some new cards here. It adds some new cards as far as actions and missions into the game. And the new moon, Phobos, plus a, I guess, a no man's land kind of dead zone where once your astronauts get killed, they kind of land there. And then there are some cards in the game. I think there's a Space Zombies card that kind of can bring them back into the game. So I enjoyed this game greatly the first time and the second time too. But as Daniel said, those discovery cards that are stuck on the outer rim of Mars that really do affect the final scoring, I don't know. It it kind of adds a little uncomfortable randomness to the game that especially at a three-player count, I don't know, wasn't that comfortable for me. If you're playing with the max number of players, then when people play those cards, I believe it's the scientist, then more people are taking a look at what's under there and you're getting more information by whether or not they're placing their astronauts there. So for a small player count, this game doesn't really do well because it doesn't scale well. 
anytime you're playing an area control game, you really want the map to kind of scale for the number of players. So for that, I'm going to say you got to play this at the max player count because I think otherwise you're not getting the most out of this game, especially when you play some of the cards like the Saboteur that could blow up some of these spacecrafts before they get to Mars. If you only have a small number of players, you're only getting a small number of ships, and it really doesn't allow you to kind of build the anticipation or really benefit from some of those cards. So this game is definitely a play for me. And if you have a chance to play it with the max number of players, I suggest picking it up. All right, Drew, what did you get a chance to play this week? Well, I went on vacation past week. But being a gamer, I took a suitcase full of games with me. I've mentioned before that I'm holding on to a collection of games from my friend John McCallion, who used to be the reviewer for Games Magazine. He's going back to Ireland, can't take him with him. So I've got a cellar full of 2,000 games in boxes. <laughs> Finally getting around to playing some of them, so I opened up a box at random to pull out a bunch to take with me on vacation, just to see what people might like. And I am getting more into family games uh, for older and younger players together. So I wanted to see what this mixed group, there were a couple nephews, ages 9 and 11 there too. Um, there were a couple games which they wanted to, that looked interesting, they wanted to play, but there was only one game that they wanted to play again and again, and that all ages really enjoyed. And it was called Dingomino, Dingomino singular. It's, yeah, it's a play on the word domino, because these are dominoes we're dealing with. Where the dingo part at the beginning, I have no idea where that came from. But Dingomino, Gigami. The French company, they, they create French language versions of many popular games. They created this in 2001. It's out of print now. So why am I talking about an out of print game? Well, People loved it. They wanted to play this again. It seemed to be a bit addictive because this game is nothing more than a mashup of Dominoes and Uno, the card game. Very simply, that's all it is. And I realized you could make this at home. Anybody could take a set of Dominoes and just put different little labels on them and create a whole Dingomino set, mixing Uno and Dominoes, and have a lot of fun with it. Uh, in fact, there's a photograph on Board Game Geek of all the tiles laid out, so you know all the tiles in the game. You can make it at home easily enough, and I'll post the link to that photo in the show notes. Make your own home version. You'll find it is just as addictive as Uno. Uh, makes dominoes a little more interesting. Maybe if they play Dingominoes, the younger folks might want to learn real dominoes. Who knows? It's a, It would make a good gateway to both of those games, really. I just thought intriguing because, you know, I love mashups. I really do. So because it's out of print, I can't call this a buy. I'm going to create a new label, Make. This is a game I highly recommend you make at home because it's more interesting than dominoes. It's a good way to, to dust off your old domino set, repurpose it, and have a game that everyone's going to enjoy. Ding dominoes. So the game that I was able to get to the table this week with Daniel and Anthony is The World of Smog on Her Majesty's Service. Now, this is a new game from Cool Mini or Not that recently funded its Kickstarter and will be hitting stores any minute now. Now, first off, I got to start by saying that when you look at this game, it's unlike anything that I've seen up to this point. The box is beautiful. Everything is so thematic. It's got these beautiful foil pieces all around it they really went above and beyond to make this game as thematic as possible and 
you'll see by the end of this review that every little piece, every little figure and terminology in this game was really kind of pinpointed to give us not just a basic game, but literally the world of Smog, a new universe that I really do hope that Cool Mini or Not takes advantage of in the future. Now, the game itself is a steampunk type of gothic theme where you're working on behalf of the Queen to journey down to the Shadow Market, this dark and dangerous place, in order to pick up ether and four relics. Now, the Shadow Market is dangerous because you can get locked in there forever. So the fantastical, evil, twisted creatures that are in this market are going to hinder your progress or, in some cases, could actually help you. Now, the game board itself is really interesting. You're going to get this large cardboard board where it's going to have 12 of these little gears that you're going to place in the game board. And as the game progresses, every time you either purchase or sell an ether in this game, you're going to turn these different kind of steampunk cogs clockwise, and that's going to change the value either of buying or selling the ether, as well as the artifacts in this game. Now, this game doesn't just have outstanding artwork, but the graphic design is really nicely laid out. So when you play this game, you are after the four artifacts, an Atlantean key, a spectral chain, an Animantian key, and a mithril lock. Now, everyone's able to pick up these throughout the game if they go to those four corners and purchase them at that particular price. But not only are you after those artifacts, but you're also trying to get a secret combination of ether in the right combination. Plus, in order to win the game, you got to be the first player out of this shadow market by going to the right location in that shadow market that's marked on a secret gate card. The game comes with four gentleman figures, which includes a lady, of course, and six agent figures and a shadow master figure. Now, if you were able to be part of the Kickstarter, you were able to pick up some additional characters for this game. You're also going to have 30 hourglass tokens, which are going to go over the spots when something is purchased or sold. 16 ether counters, which is these really nice little pieces that have a little kind of drop of color. And 30 coins that you're going to use in this game. Now, once you set up the game board with those different gears, you're also going to put shadow agents on the different corners. And they will come into play when purchases or sales are made. Now, those different agents are have cards that are associated with them. So that card will tell you, for example, if an ether is cheaper to buy, or maybe it'll teleport you somewhere in the game. And each time something is purchased or sold, the older agent will go out and a new agent will come into play. So at the start of the game, you're in the middle and you're kind of venturing out, purchasing and selling ether, picking up artifacts, uh, and depending on where the cogs are arranged, they're going to be different prices, but also there's going to be fog that's going to be blocking your way. So if you want to pass through that fog, it's going to cost you an additional coin. Now the ether itself, red for blood, blue for mana, white for ectoplasm, and brown from titanium, are going to be available on these different cogs 
but depending on where they turn and depending on where the hourglass tokens are on, some of those things are going to become a little more costly to come by. Now, where you are sitting in relation to the game board is how you know whether something costs, let's say, two or three or four or sometimes even one because of your your positioning. Now, on the game, you can move your gentleman. You could rotate a tile. You could buy ether. You could sell ether. You can buy an artifact. You can remove hourglass tokens that allow you to kind of purchase or sell those ether for that value. You can request coins if you have the least amount of coins. And, of course, you can exit the shadow market. Now, there are some free actions in the game. So, for example, if you've picked up some special action coins, if you picked up some special action cards, you'll be able to play them without any cost. And don't forget, you'll be able to also pay the Shadow Master. Now, that's probably what's most interesting about this game is that there's this independent element to the game that if you win an auction, you'll get the Shadow Master. He'll basically be stealing your money throughout the game, but he'll give you an additional action, let you go first, and let you move the Shadow Agents at the beginning of the game. So, there is an additional way to kind of hinder your opponents and maybe help yourself throughout the game. So beyond the creepy Shadow Master, you're going to be picking up all these Ether, you're going to be picking up those artifacts, and then hopefully getting out of the game before everyone else does. The game is thematic throughout. Now, some people talked about this game as being Kulminir or not's Euro game. Now, I don't think it's a Euro game so much as it is an Amerithime puzzle game because you're just trying to collect what you need to collect based upon these different type of gear mechanics and then just get out as soon as possible artwork is outstanding graphic design is outstanding this game is dripping with theme it actually plays pretty quickly and and that was one of the things i was surprised about here this game for the theme alone is worth the buy the gameplay is a little bit light so maybe i would say play it first and if this theme kind of blows you away, that's definitely worth a buy. Daniel, what about you? What do you think about this game? You know, it was a really fun game, and it's a unique mechanic to have where you're sitting on at the table matter so much to the way the game plays and the way that the field is set up. Uh, and I think that the agents provided an interesting twist, and bidding for the Shadow Master was very fun. I do think that there were some issues with the gameplay, so... Some of the special powers were really useful, and others seemed to be not so much. And weirdly, some of the most useful ones had the lowest requirements for use. Hmm. So every power, you have to have some amount of ether to use. Yes. But one of the most useful in the game gives you two actions immediately, which is hugely valuable in a game like this. And you only have to have one ether for it. Hmm. Whereas there are other uh, arguably less useful special abilities that require three different kinds of ether. It's, you know, a minor annoyance in that regard, that there might be some imbalances in that deck. Overall, it is definitely a very fun game. I would put it around a play. If I had the chance to go back and back the Kickstarter, I probably would have done that. So for the whole Kickstarter set, it would have been a buy. I think having those extra options would make the game more entertaining. Sure. Uh, Especially with those additional minis, how well-crafted they were. Yeah, and the minis are very attractive. It'd be nice to have the full figure stand, uh, the full figures of the. Yeah, and those minis were definitely very attractive. It would be nice to have the full figures of the player characters as they do in the Kickstarter, because it'd make it easier to tell them apart from the agents. 
Sure. But overall, it really is a very fun and perhaps more notably unique game. And it does feel a little bit to me like the first flawed implementation of a game system or mechanic that's going to become very popular. Sure. Uh, but it is, it's definitely a play, possibly a buy. I would give it a try before you go out and buy it. Uh, but yeah, good game. All right, so that's what's hitting our table this week. And now, BGA's feature review. So for our feature this week, we're going to talk about the best game for female representation. Now, you may know for tabletop gaming, female characters are few and far between. And even those that are mostly in games tend to be, let's say, very stereotypical heroines in distress or highly sexualized or made to look like they're ignorant or dumb or have very weak player powers. And as an industry that's still growing, you really do want to have strong representation of at least 50% because females are 50% of our population. And even as males at the game table, I don't know. I want to play strong female characters. It's something that I don't get a chance to do, not being a female. So I want to play those roles out. And I want to play strong female characters. And I want my female game players to feel like there's characters that represent who they are. And not have to sit down at a game and play the third or fourth different barbarian hulking monster in a game, but play a character that represents their strengths and abilities. What do you think about this, Daniel? Yeah, I mean, when I sit down to play a board game, right, I'm a male, and I mean, I'm a white male, so like everything is about me, right? Uh, <laughs> if I want to play, if I want to look at the table and pick a character that embodies any aspect of myself, right? If I want the character to be a scientist, there's a male scientist. If I want a soldier, there's a male soldier, right? If I want a wizard, I've got wizards. Whatever I want, there's probably a male character that matches whatever I'm feeling like playing that day. Or, importantly, what I see in myself. But when you look at female representations in games in general and tabletop games, particularly in this case, but, you know, video games too, you end up getting usually one of two characters the, and the hyper-sexualized backstabber character that tend to be female characters. And that is very limiting for, I imagine anyway, for female players uh, because they don't get to see themselves represented in the game the same way that men do. And so the games that we're going to be listing here are going to be games that have both a a good number of female characters, that is more than one or two token characters, and games that uh, where those characters tend to break out of the stereotypical roles, right? They break out of these, uh, either the damsel in distress or the backstabbing succubus, uh, and they do something more than that, uh, uh, moving into a wider range of things uh, which would make it easier for uh, a young girl to see herself as a scientist, perhaps, when she's sitting down to play this game. So overall, when we're looking at the best game for female representation, we're looking for the largest majorities we can find, the best, strongest characters we can find, the best representation that is not demeaned in any type of way. Now, just just note, before we get into the list, we're not including games based on IPs because the game designer doesn't really have a lot of options there. They're basically just transporting all the characters over from an IP, for example, Battlestar Galactica, and just using that. It doesn't have anything to do with the game. It's more a part of the original IP. 
So what we're looking for are games that have been designed from scratch with a, a good, strong uh, percentage of representation of women. Absolutely. And we want to give a special mention to characters that have both genders. So Imperial Settlers, The Resistance, Kill the Overlord, The Noblemen, The Legends of Andor. You can play as both a male or female. Just, just flipping the card over allows you to do so. But these are the games that are the best character representations in board gaming. So, Drew, why don't you start us off? Well, I think it's only fair to start with one of the earliest games um, that had a, a very prominent, very strong woman in, and that's chess. You may think it's not fair because out of 16 pieces on each side, there's only one woman represented, but that woman is the centerpiece. All of the attention throughout the whole game is focused on the queen. Where is the queen? What can the queen do? Sure, you're trying to capture the other guy's king, but you always have to focus on the queen. She's got all the power. It's good to keep in mind that women have not been treated as just pawns in the game. Sometimes they've had great power. So that's that's one I would include on this list. All right, Daniel, how about you? Uh, well, so the the first one that jumps to mind for me is going to be uh, Alien Uprising. Uh, Alien Uprising was a Kickstarter game that got a lot of attention and then kind of got panned for having a not-so-great rule book. But it is, you know, a, a sort of hold-the-line-together, fight-off-the-alien-horde sort of game. Uh, and, it, you know, very fun game if you can fight through the rule books. Uh, and it has five character cards in the base set, and two of those five character cards are females, so two out of three, which, you know, not so bad. Uh, and especially noteworthy to me is that the female character cards in this game are not sexualized. Uh, their roles are not, you know, these sort of traditional feminine roles, right? They are a pilot and a scientist. And the only makeup any of them are wearing is war paint. I swear to God, actual war paint. So I think that Alien Uprising definitely deserves a place on this list of games with positive female characters in them. Okay, one game that I wanted to talk about is Seven Wonders. Now, there are some cards in Seven Wonders that have female representation, but what really brings out the female characters has to be Seven Wonders leaders and a few cards in Seven Wonders cities. Now, what you have is 36 historical leaders. Now, thankfully, they have also represented eight of the historical leaders that were women. Now, as far as a percentage goes, this is not great, but being that it is still historically based, it's good to see so many strong women represented in that game. So basically building your strategy can be based upon some of these strong women in the game. So you have, like, for example, Nefertiti's in this game, and you also have Cleopatra, and their powers are equal, if not stronger, than a lot of the other male characters in this game. And it's just so nice to see when you build this wondrous civilization that it's led by these great women. So that's my suggestion here. And I think with with most of the games on this list, we have to keep in mind the the context of the times. A lot of these games are his, uh, represent historical time periods where women weren't given a lot of power or a lot of influence, and yet the game designers are finding those few women and giving them their place. 
their due. So it's not just a nod to the women, but it's actually accepting the historical reality that women have always been a large part of civilization. We just don't see it as much. They just never were given the chance, but designers, these designers are giving them that chance. All right, Dan, you got another one for us? Uh, I absolutely do. My next game for this list is going to be one that's probably not too surprising to hear on this list is Pandemic. Oh man, both of these are co-ops. I like co-ops. Uh, <laughs> Pandemic is another very well-balanced game uh, of the seven roles in the base set. Three of them are fem- female, so three to four. Uh, and again, like Alien Uprising, they're not confined to traditionally female roles, right? They're researchers, they're, the, they're scientists, they're helping to stop this global epidemic. My favorite role in the game is the quarantine specialist, and that card is a woman, and in fact a woman of color, and I do think that pandemic should get like a second hurrah for including a large number of people of color in their, in their character builds as well, uh, which is another thing that tends to be underrepresented in board games as a rule and games in general so another great game with female representation has to be the future take down the man game coup in this five character game two of the five cards are strong female protagonists so you have the assassin which is probably the most important card in the game and the way in which you win by taking out other characters the countess that defends you against the assassin and in its expansion, the Inquisitor is also another female character in the game. As I said, if you picked up the Kickstarter version of this game previously, you got a lot of alternate artwork that allows you to bring more women into the game. But even starting with the base set and the expansion, you have two or three strong female characters. And that's Koo. Now, related to Koo, uh, and probably the, the game that people learned before they, they picked up Koo, was Love Letter. Very similar gameplay. And also, similarly, they have a number of strong female characters. From the princess at the very top, which is the the most valuable card you can have, the one that wins all head-to-head competitions, all the way down to the guard, maybe the lowly guard, but the guard is the one character that can knock off all the other characters. So there are female characters all through it, but even more so, let's expand this to include the entire Tempest world and and all the interconnected games related to Love Letter, like Dominaire, like Canalis, like Courier. Right, there are a number of games. All of them have a great number of characters. For example, Dominaire has 95 character cards in it. 25 of them are women. Again, not an equal representation, but considering the time period that, that the Tempest world is set in and the fact that so many of those 25 female characters are very strong, very powerful. When the game comes to the seventh round, you want some of those characters, some of those agents on your side working for you. So they they make them just as valuable. My third contribution to this list is going to be a game I've talked about quite a lot recently, which is Dark Gothic from Flying Frog Productions. Dark Gothic comes out, with all of its expansions anyway, to be almost 50-50 with six female characters to seven males. Uh, And like all the other games we've been talking about, uh, the female characters are not helpless characters. They are not weaker or worse than the male characters in any way. And in fact, many of my favorite characters are the female characters in Dark Gothic because they have some really fantastic powers. So I think that Dark Gothic is definitely one that deserves attention. Also in that many of the action cards have images of female characters on them. Uh, So Dark Gothic is another game with some really excellent representation of female characters. I'm going to steal one of the 
the cooperative games that Daniel's been talking about, because I want to talk, I really enjoy this, Mice and Mystics. It's one of Anthony's favorite games, too. The base game has six characters. Only two of them are women. Well, I'm going to take one of those cooperative games that um, Daniel's been talking about and discuss it myself, because I like Mice and Mystics. I think it's a great representation. Only two of the six characters in the base set are women, but they provide a nice variety of characteristics. One is, yeah, the traditional basic role of healer, and that's Tilda. Still, when you're fairly new at this game and you get hit a lot and die a lot, you want someone like Tilda there. A healer is a very powerful role. The other female character is Lily, the archer. Very strong character, someone you, you are glad to have in your party. And again, to me, that's, that's the key. If you're glad to have this character in your party, then they're well represented. Um, I'd love to have Lily and Tilda both with me on my next adventure. All right, so uh, my last game, our list of positive female characters in, in board games, is going to come from Dead of Winter. Dead of Winter has 12 female characters, 17 males, and a dog. Of <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I didn't feel like it mattered that much about the gender of the dog, since <laughs> we're mostly concerned about humans here. And while it's not, you know, a perfect 50-50, again, it's, it's within striking distance of an equal split. And one thing that I think is really nice about Dead of Winter, because it has so many characters, is that they're able to... And Dead of Winter, I think, does a very good job of spreading across uh, a wide range of roles, some of which are traditionally feminine, say the teacher, others of which are definitely not, say the pilot, and gives just a huge variety of different roles that you can utilize while playing a female character. It's also just an amazing game uh, and incredibly popular. So, you know, that doesn't hurt either. Uh, so I think Dead of Winter definitely earns its place in the uh, pantheon of games with good gender representation. It also has some people of color in it as well. So that's another time I think that should give like a secondary ding for its good representation of multiple different groups in multiple different ways. Now, Daniel, I'm going to throw in one extra female character that wasn't in the base set, but uh, she showed up at the last tabletop day, and that's Felicia Day, her promo card for Dead of Winter. And I got to talk about how she is a part of this whole cottage industry, which is growing up around promo cards, not just at uh, tabletop day, but through a lot of other game releases and game events and Kickstarter. With all the proliferation of promo cards, Felicia Day is really at the top of the pack. Everybody wants her in their Dead of Winter set. She's also Takedo, Flux, Munchkin, Gloom. I'm sure there's a bunch more where she's there. And Will Wheaton, of course, is there too. But the fact that there is such a strong, powerful woman in the hobby such that everybody wants her in their game that's an interesting uh, twist to this that females are well represented when someone like felicia day is a character that's showing up as an addition as an add-on to so many of these games so good for her absolutely especially that she leads the guild so if you've ever watched her videos there then you know that she is the central protagonist and such an outstanding person and as you said characters in so many of our yeah. games uh -huh. so our final game that we wanted to talk about as having outstanding female characters is sentinels of the multiverse now 
where DC and Marvel kind of drop the ball sometimes in their board games by not representing the diversity, Sentinels of the Multiverse does an outstanding job in creating a universe that has so many strong female superheroes and villains. So even in the base set, you can play as Fanatic and Tachyon. There's the Visionary, the Wraith, Expatriate, Nightmist. And of course, there are some characters that I don't know if gender really plays much of a role, but there's also Unity and Knife. And there's a female character in the Sentinels, the little kind of little team kind of pack. There's also Parse. There's Citizen Dawn, which is probably the my favorite villain, kind of a Magneto villain in Sentinels. But there's also the Matriarch. You know, it's really nice not just to have heroes, but you actually have a couple of villains you got to fight against. There's the Aeneid, which is a villain team that you get to play and has some female characters. There's also Kismet, La Captain, The Dreamer, Misinformation, Friction, and Armin. So... Man, there's so many female characters in this game, and it's a definite co-op in this game. But, man, you get to play as female superheroes with their powers, their abilities, and not just sidekicks in the superhero universe. So, it's probably, for me personally, the best game as far as female characterization in a board game. So, yeah, it's a great way to introduce, especially if you're having children, introduce them to the concept of this is the superhero world you want to be a part of. This is this is great. And I know they're coming out with comics about this, and I hope this becomes a big thing. It's a great, it's a great game. So that is our best games for female representation. We know that you'll love them, and it's always good to bring new players into our hobby Get them to sit down at the table and explore all these different characterizations that, as Drew said, just happen to be female, but happen also to be outstanding. And now, our final round. Well, we've come to our final round. And this week, as Daniel can tell us, it's time to go back to school. Daniel, did you collect all your supplies? Are you... Yeah, just remember, kids, your teachers also probably don't want to be there. No, (laughs) it's fun. It's wonderful. We love it. But still. (laughs) So everybody who goes back to school has to have their supplies ready. And we're going to talk about in our final round supplies that pretty much you can steal from your kids if you want or just (laughs) pick up at the local store and you could use in the board gaming hobby. Now, I'll give you an example. When I was a kid going to school, we had all our pencils and protractors and all that stuff, but we had to organize. We had a little plastic box with compartments that we had to put things in. Well, as board gamers, man, do we need these compartments nowadays. Because throw away that little little cardboard insert that comes in most games and just get yourself a really good plastic organizer, a Plano box, and you can sort out all the chits and pieces and meeples and dice. you got to have your organizer. Daniel, what do you need? Uh, For me, it's going to be the humble three-ring binder. Mm -hmm. Uh, I remember as a kid, every summer that was on the the list, right? At least like three or four times. You just buy those big packs of them. And then I finally got out of the the days when they would tell me what to buy, and I never touched one again, except for when I need to deal with a card game, specifically uh, living card games. There's a a common problem people will mention of uh, needing to have 
a whole bunch of extra copies of everything if you want to have multiple decks. And I just wonder why these people like don't organize things better so they don't have to do that. Now, if you want multiple decks at any one time, yeah, you're still going to have to do that. But a well-organized collection in a binder with and with the uh, trading card sleeves that they make mostly for baseball card collections back in the day uh, will let you index the pages that all your cards are on and rapidly pull together a deck from just a piece of paper and you won't have to keep going back. In fact, Mage Wars often does something kind of like this. Uh, at least Mage Wars players I've seen do stuff like this. So yeah, binders. Binders are awesome. <laughs> hey Chris, what do you got? Well, if you're going to school, you need to pack everything up. You need to make sure that everything's secure. So typically, you're going to bring some rubber bands with you. Rubber and... bands? No, they stick to everything. But you also no. get to shoot them in class, too, at people. It's fun. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, rubber bands. They're essential for gaming. Now, maybe you're like me or maybe you're like Daniel and just picked up a whole new gaming storage system and you happen to need to rest your games on their side. Now that's going to get a little iffy here because you don't want those game components flying out. Now Board Gaming has four-way rubber bands. Now our friends at the Broken Token actually have a number of different box bandits. Now these safe rubber bands for your board games won't hurt your board game covers and hold your game securely so when you're transporting your board games just like when you were a kid transporting your books you don't have to worry because everything's locked down and safe and they're still good for shooting your friends non-stick rubber bands that's a great invention i tell you that's awesome and that guys is our final round for this week so that's everything for this week please keep in contact with us on facebook twitter boardgamersanonymous.com our guild on board game geek don't forget our Patreon account. The more you support us, the more board gaming goodness we can get out to you. Also, don't forget to rate us on iTunes and Stitcher. Until next time, this is Chris. This is Daniel. And this is Drew. And until next time, we'll save you the chance to play a strong female character at the table. 